2: Well, happy September, everybody. September 1st, it's here, finally. Um, It feels like fall outside today, but it won't later on this weekend. Uh, If you're in the D.C. area, you know that the last few days have been beautiful. By Sunday, low to mid-90s. By Labor Day, mid to upper 90s. And much of the week next week will be in the mid to upper 90s. So enjoy today. And tomorrow, I did look at the extended forecast for next Sunday, September 10th, 1 p.m. in Landover. Sunny and 86 degrees at kickoff is the forecast now, subject to change, of course, but it will be a warm opener against the Cardinals. But it's a good thing they're not playing the game on Wednesday or Thursday, where temperatures right now are predicted to be 96, 97, 98 degrees next week. Uh, The team, by the way, today announced that it is official. The season opener at home against the Cardinals is a sellout. Good for them. The atmosphere should be great. Now go win the game and win it easily. You know, something like 31 to 14 would be nice. Uh, It'll be a game where the status of a few players are, uh, you know, it's going to hang in the balance for some of these guys for at least some of next week. Terry McLaurin's toe, that's going to be an early week storyline unless we get something about it over the weekend. Uh, Until he's back practicing and cleared to play in the opener, that will be a question. Chase Young's doctor appointment uh, that was, I believe, scheduled for today will shed more light on the stinger injury. Um, This could be something you already know about as you're listening to the podcast, uh, but as of now, no reports on it. Um, You know, I guess it's still possible that it could become something that lingers. Phil Mathis went on the IR yesterday. Man, has he had a rough start to his career. Taken in the second round. uh, Hurt early in the opener last year, so he missed basically the entire season. Hurt in the first preseason game this year. Um, That means he is out for at least the first four games of the year. Same goes for F.A. Obata. Uh, he's on the injured reserve as well. They added a D-lineman, Abdullah Anderson, and then they added back to the roster yesterday, Tyler Larson, uh, the center. Um, Some good news, Logan Thomas back from the calf injury and says he feels good and will be ready to go next Sunday. Uh, Coming up on the show today, Santana Moss will be my guest in the next segment. And then Tim Murray will be on with us at the end. We'll talk some college football with Murray, get some picks from him uh, coming up um, as well. My first smell test of the year coming up in a few minutes in this opening segment of the show. I've got five picks for the first full college football game, uh, football weekend of the year. Uh, Last night, the Minnesota-Nebraska game, uh, it wasn't necessarily a great game, but it had a great finish. I felt badly uh, for Nebraska. The Huskers, over the last six years, they put this stat up. They've lost 27 of 34 games decided by a touchdown or less. Last year, f- uh, two and five in games decided by a touchdown or or less. Uh, they had some terrible Matt Rule clock management at the end of that first half last night. Matt Rule's never been good at it, college coach or pro coach. Um, and they just completely mishandled. At the end of the half, they were down 3 nothing. They had uh, a first and goal and then a second and goal at the one after the first down play. It's always incredible to me, You know, in terms of what goes through or what isn't going through the minds of these men who are paid millions of dollars a year to do everything in their power to win games. And then they just either freeze up uh, in these last-minute situations or they just don't know what to do. Um, It's second and goal after a first and goal gets the ball to the Minnesota one-yard line. And when that play ends, there are 24 seconds left in the half. Nebraska's got one timeout left. They should have used it right there. But instead, they didn't snap it until nine seconds were left on the clock. They were rushing at that point. They false started, so they lose five yards. They lose 14 seconds. And on the next play, the quarterback tries to force it, and he throws an interception into the end zone because they had to throw the football there. They couldn't run the football. With 23 seconds left, even with no timeout, you still have the option of lining up and running the football, uh, at least on the next play, and then you've got to line up and throw one into the end zone on third down and then kick the field goal on fourth down. You know, I, I used to ask Cooley this question all the time. When you're trying to score at the end of a half or at the end of a game, is it better to have more plays or less plays? It's not that hard, but apparently for Matt Rule, it was. Uh, Nebraska loses another heartbreaker, but at least they have women's volleyball. Um, The Florida-Utah game, which I watched uh, pretty much start to finish, was a mess for the Gators. Too many mistakes, all of them pretty much self-inflicted. I thought the game could have been a much closer game than the way it played out. Uh Florida was down 7 to 3 and they were driving um and then they had um they had a turnover at that point or a penalty that caused them uh, to punt. Utah had to punt uh, up 7-3 uh but but Florida had Two players with the number three jersey on the field for the punt return. Five-yard penalty, automatic first down Utah. They go down and score to take a 14-3 lead, and it felt like it was kind of over at that point. But Utah did not have their starting quarterback, but their backups were excellent. They beat Florida 24-11. to um, How about this one from last night? UCF in a 56-6 to win over Kent or Kent State, whatever it's called these days, 723 yards of offense. Um, That's a lot of offense, but that's not even close to anything resembling record-breaking. In 1989, Andre Ware led Houston to a 95-21 win over SMU. The Cougars in that game had an NCAA record record 1,021 yards of total offense. That wasn't two teams combined. That was one team in the game. Uh, By the way, in that game, Andre Ware threw for 517 yards and six touchdowns. 340 of those yards and five of those touchdowns came in one quarter, the second quarter. Uh, Also, by the way, about that game, Jack Pardee was the coach of that team, uh, that Houston team. And SMU was in the throes of the death penalty probation era after paying Craig James and Eric Dickerson uh, hard cash. Uh, So they didn't have much. But by the way, I was thinking about the 723 yards and the 56-6 win. So college football has a couple of new rules this year, but all intended to speed up the game, something I've been complaining about for years. And I've suggested, look, all they got to do is eliminate that clock stops on first downs rule. Um, Keep it for the final two minutes of the half and the game to kind of keep the flavor of the college game of, you know, you get a first down and the clock stops, even if you don't have any timeouts. But don't do it all game long. That's why some of these games were getting close to 4 hours because there's so many chunk plays in college football. There's so many first downs that go for 10 or more yards. So it was like the clock was stopping after every play or every other play. Um I have not seen any data from last night, but what the, lengthening those games did with that rule is give, you know, teams the opportunity to gain more yards and score more points, so I bet you the 95 to 21 win with 1,021 yards of total offense. Now that the uh, you know college has uh, created rules to speed up the game, I don't think we'll ever see that 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 record broken. Uh, I mean that that seems to me to be a record that will stand forever. 1,021 yards by one team. You know, again, it's one thing if the if the clock is stopping and you're ending up with 95, you know, snaps in a game, but if you're down to 85, and I don't, I think the um, the the thought is they'll be able to slice maybe eight to ten, maybe 12 minutes off these games. Um, I don't know if that seems like a lot or will seem like a lot, but I think it'll be you know five to 10 plays probably per team per game somewhere in that area. Uh, The other things they're doing is, uh, you know, there's no two-minute warning still. So the clock's going to roll on first downs until you're under two minutes. And then you can't call back-to-back timeouts anymore in college. You used to be able to call, if you had three timeouts left at the end of a first half, you could use all three to try to ice a kicker. Before a field goal attempt. Now you can only use one. And if there's a penalty at the end of the first or third quarter, they're not going to run an untimed down in that quarter. They'll just run the next play at the beginning of the next quarter. Um, Anyway, uh, that was night one in college football last night. Uh, Don't forget to rate us and review us, especially on Apple and Spotify. It's always much appreciated. This uh, comes from ICB80, five stars, thank you, uh, on Apple. And as I've mentioned before, uh, just a, a one-to-two sentence review is all you need to do. And he or she writes, Kevin should stay with Cooley for a month straight so we can hear him on the podcast all season long. Uh, yeah, Cooley suggested that I gave him half the amount of time he was looking for when I went out to Wyoming. So he's only going to give me half the time this year. I don't think he'll really do that. Um, So uh, thank you. Yeah, uh, uh, a rating and a review and a follow on Apple and Spotify. Much appreciated uh, if you can do that. Um, Before I get to the first smell test of the year, and then we'll get to Santana, I want to, as I have in the past, recommend subscribing to The Athletic. It's like a dollar a month these days. I mean, it's nothing. Um, It's totally worth it. And I, uh, early this morning, read Ben Standig's second part of his annual survey of NFL agents. Ben's been doing this now. I think this is the fifth year where he surveys uh, a large group of NFL player agents on the condition of anonymity. Um, on a number of football subjects, NFL subjects, including lots of subjects having to do with Washington. Uh, I just read the second part um, of the survey, which he put out last night. And there were some really interesting things in here. And I'm going to read a few of them to you. Um, first of all, there was there were several comments about Eric Bieniemy. I'm not going to read all of these because then You know, Ben doesn't want me to read all of them. He wants you to subscribe to The Athletic, as I do, um, to to read the rest of them. But this was an agent about Eric Biennemi and what to expect this year. Quote, I don't know that there's a more polarizing guy in the league in the sense that you have a faction of former players and analysts who just praise him and, thinks, and, and think he's going to be, for the lack of a better example, Andy Reid. And then you've got a faction on the other side that thinks he's going to be a disaster as a coordinator without Andy. I don't have a prediction, but I'm fascinated to see how it all plays out. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing with Eric Bieniemy, is that nobody knows. Like I've talked a lot about Sam Howell, nobody knows. The offensive line, eh, kind of don't know. Um, Chase Young, don't know. But Eric Bieniemy is a don't know. Now, there are things about training camp in the offseason that seem encouraging, uh, but You know, he does not have Patrick Mahomes here. Uh, Andy Reid did a great job with Alex Smith, did a great job with all of his quarterbacks in Philadelphia, obviously, but didn't win a Super Bowl until he got Patrick Mahomes. Um, But I think that's really the way a lot of people in the league are viewing this. They don't know how it will turn out because we don't really know how much of what Kansas City did and accomplished – was Andy Reid Patrick Mahomes or Andy Reid Patrick Mahomes, Patrick Mahomes and Eric Bien-Aimé. Um Then there were uh, God, man, there was a lot on the Snyder exit. I, I think it's actually um, kind of interesting. I'm not going to read them all. I'll read a couple of them. Uh, but you know, we've always said about Washington during Dan Snyder, uh, especially over the last decade, much more so than the first decade is that guys just didn't want to come here. Um, And the only way to get them here was to overpay. Uh, And it just wasn't a destination, Um, Washington, as long as Dan was here. uh, And and it wasn't for the most part. You know, occasionally they got some players, but usually it was because those players didn't have a lot of other choices uh, to make the kind of money that Washington may have been offering. But there are a couple of quotes about Snyder. Quote, from an agent on the condition of uh, anonymity. Now it will be easier to get guys to come to Washington. And then he added, hopefully they will treat families better going forward. Uh, Another agent, this now makes Washington more intriguing for players, can now evaluate more than just the money. Um, another one, uh, it's great for the team. Snyder was actually great for agents because of how impulsive he was. If you had a top guy that he wanted, you could go right to him and get a deal done. He'd pay whatever you wanted. Dan was a terrible owner and the sale made the team a little bit more attractive. They still have problems. I mean, they got to clean up the front office a little bit. They have a good personnel staff, but they need to work on their communication Uh, That was from an agent. And then there was, um, let me just, there was this one. Um... You want to send your clients to a franchise where you see stability so that a player doesn't have to worry about a change of coaching staff or the front office, which affects players' job security. With Snyder, you never knew. He sucked the energy out of the building. You want your guys to go to a building that's going to have great energy. You hope that changing ownership gets rid of that negative energy and some really bad decisions that they made. Um, There were a lot of others on Snyder. And then... There was a section on whether for uh, what advice these agents would give Josh Harris. Let me pick out a few here. uh, Don't waste goodwill, act swiftly and appeal to the fan base. They look ready. Uh, Second piece of advice blow up the front office. Um, a third p- piece of advice: hire the best qualified football person you can, and then get out of get out of his way. And then here was another one: treat the players like humans. Um, <laughs> You know, there's something, it's a long answer, but, uh, you know, essentially they said Dan treated stars like stars and bottom players like bottom players, uh, which is something I always talked about. That was part of the problem here. That's why you'll never hear Clinton or London or, you know, Santana, you know, say bad things about Dan because he treated stars so well. Um, but, uh, No matter what you did internally with Washington's franchise, until you cut off the head of the snake, it was going to trickle down and not be a good place to work. Um, Then there was a whole uh, section on Ron Rivera. What do you think of Ron Rivera, the job he's done, and what's next for him? I'm telling you guys, most of these answers from agents are really complimentary about Ron. This is the thing that I think a lot of people who are fans of the team don't get. And, look, we know more sometimes than NFL agents do. We're living day-to-day, you know, play-by-play in these games, Uh, play-by-play with his press conferences, too. Um, But here's one. Uh, I think he's done a good job. I've got a ton of respect for Ron. And I think taking that job and having to deal with ownership was obviously difficult with Dan there. I think he's done a good enough job. I think now we can really evaluate him more based on the job he's doing because I don't think he has the same obstacle in front of him with Dan gone. Um, Another agent. I'm still a fan. He's been handcuffed since he's been there in some ways. You have to have a quarterback. Maybe Sam Howell finally fills that hole. Another agent, love him, Uh, but I'm not sure he will survive this ownership change no matter what. Owners want to put a stamp on their new toy. Um, Another one, love Ron, root for him. Uh, Another one, I love the guy, straight shooter. He'll do what's right by the young men, no matter what. I mean, overwhelmingly positive stuff about Ron. You know, there's something, you know, uh, here's another agent. Better win, he's facing an uphill battle. Um, but, yeah, uh, it's, it's always uh, interesting to me, um, even when I have people on the show from other NFL cities and they have a lot of respect for Ron Rivera. Uh, Sean King didn't <laughs> um, last week. Uh, he did not. It was not a big fan of Ron Rivera, but a lot of people are. Um, all right, let's get to the first smell test of the year.
1: Kevin looks where the John Q. Public is
2: putting their cash, and does the opposite. It's, it's time, time for, for the, the smell, smell test. test. The smell test is brought to you by my good friends at My Bookie, guys. If you're ready to wager on football. My recommendation is my bookie. Even if you have a place, use my bookie as your second spot to comparison shop on things like point spreads and money lines and over/under numbers and pricing. You should have more than one place if you're doing this the right way, and MyBookie can be that place. Go to MyBookie.ag right now. Register for an account. That's free. Use my promo code when you make your first deposit. You'll get a welcome bonus on the house. And when you use my promo code, KevinDC, in addition to claiming your deposit bonus for a limited time, you get a free chip to use in the MyBookie casino. MyBookie's got fair point spreads, fair totals, fair money lines, fair pricing. This is a place that isn't complicated. You want your money out, you'll get it out. Not every place allows you to get it out that easily. MyBookie.ag, promo code KevinDC. They're going to give you a bonus. What does that mean? It means whatever you make your deposit for, they're going to give you more money into your account to bet with after you make that first deposit, mybookie.ag promo code Kevin DC. Eighteenth season for the smell test. Uh, Twelve winning seasons, five losing seasons. For those of you who don't know, uh, the smell test is, for all intents and purposes, a contrarian handicapping philosophy. Now everybody seems to be doing contrarian handicapping philosophies these days, but they weren't 18 years ago, just like everybody seems to be doing a mock schedule these days. Um, but they weren't, you know, 10 or 11 years ago when I started doing it on the show. Um, but, uh, it's more than just betting against the public. You know, it's more than just finding out who the public is convinced, um, is going to win and cover, uh, you know, because the books have messed up the point spread. It's more than just that. As many of you know, I've had good contacts uh, offshore primarily over the years, and that gives me real data and real inside information on not just, you know, where the public uh, wagering is, both, you know, in terms of bets and dollar volume, Um, but also where a lot of the sharp money is. Uh, A lot of you use those sites that indicate sort of the public a percentage breakdown. Not all of those sites are accurate. In fact, all you have to do is go to two or three of those sites and you'll see sometimes, you know, one game, you know, take Arizona and Washington. Washington's getting 56% of the action, Arizona's getting 44%. Then you go to another site and it shows Arizona's getting 56% of the action and Washington's getting 44%. They're not very accurate. So Kind of the idea that the public is wrong more than they're right, along with a lot of the information that I'm able to get, especially during football season, and a lot of experience on the kinds of games that kind of set up for this. Um, It's all part of it. Uh, It is in fun. I really do, even though I do wager on football and have for a long time on sports in general – It's, as my friends and I say when we're in Vegas, Vegas, it's not for everybody. Um, So, you know, tread lightly. Uh, This should be for entertainment purposes only. Wagering should be for entertainment purposes only. Don't believe people out there. And we've had some in town that own teams that have tried to make people believe that they can actually turn this into a career. No, you can't. Uh, Billy Walters did, Uh, but that's, you know, one in many, many, many millions. All right, let's get to it. Uh, Week one of college football. I didn't have anything last night, and I don't have anything in the games tonight either. I do have four games tomorrow, and then I've got a pick in the final game of the weekend on Labor Day night. I'm sure you can already predict who that is. Uh, pick is. Um, but let's get started. Early tomorrow, 12 noon, Fresno State at Purdue. Uh, Fresno and Purdue are totally different teams than they were last year. Uh, Fresno's lost a lot of their players offensively, including Jay Kaner, who's in New Orleans, is a backup to I think he's a third stringer right now to Derek Carr and to Jameis Winston. I liked Jay Kaner as a college quarterback. Um, Purdue lost Aiden O'Connell um, and their top two receivers, uh, including the kid who we saw last week with Cincinnati. Um, I do like um, Fresno State in this one in part because Purdue's lost a lot and they lost their head coach. Jeff Brom, who's heading back to Louisville where he played after leading Purdue to the Big Ten West title a year ago. Don't forget, Purdue was in the Big Ten championship game uh, last year. Uh, This line is short. Uh, Fresno is getting four at Purdue, and the public is backing Purdue. And there was very early sharp money on Fresno State. So give me Fresno plus the four. Up next, Iowa minus 25 at home against Utah State. Now, I nearly passed on giving this one out. Not because it didn't fit the criteria. It did. There's heavy public action on Utah State, and there is sharp action on Iowa. But last year it seemed like there were a couple of these games. I think I gave Iowa out three or four times last year, and I think I lost two of those uh, at least. Week three last year was the first time I gave them out. They, they won their opener last year 7-3. to three. Against South Dakota State, and then in Week Two, lost ten to seven. In that first game, the, the touchdown wasn't even an offensive touchdown. They literally like had seven offensive points in the first two games, and they were laying twenty-four points in Week Three against Nevada. And I gave them out, and they won the game twenty-seven to nothing. And I think I made the call uh, that Friday and said, "This is going to be like." 30 to 3, or maybe 28 to nothing, and it was 27 to nothing. Uh, They were dominant defensively last year, and they were horrendous offensively last year. Now, they lost Jack Campbell um, in the draft, uh, but they got a Virginia linebacker, Nick Jackson, who was a big time star at UVA, and the defense is expected to be very good again. Offensively, um, we'll see, you know, they McNamara transferred from Michigan to to Iowa, so they've got a different quarterback situation uh, than they've had here in recent years. Uh, I guess there's an expectation that they'll be better offensively. Look, Kirk Ferentz was an offensive head coach for many years, but his defenses have been so good here recently. But that's a big number for a team that could barely score last year to give out in an opener. Publix on Utah State, I will take Iowa and lay the 25. Um, Next up, there's a team that I like this year uh, because of the coach in particular and because of what he's building, and that is Brett Bielma at Illinois. But I do not like him tomorrow in their game against Toledo. Toledo had a great season last year. Um, Toledo's getting nine at Illinois. Uh, people are packed in on the Illini thinking this could be a good year, that they could contend in the Big Ten West. They're laying less than 10 at home. There is some sharp money on Toledo. Uh, Toledo can score. Illinois is very physical. They were very good defensively last year. Um, I'm going to take Toledo plus the 9 in that one. And then in a game that to me stood out, Uh, when I looked at the board for the first time a few weeks ago, this was the game that stood out more than any other. And I think I mentioned it yesterday um, with Stanford Steve on the podcast. And that is South Alabama at Tulane. Tulane is laying six and a half. Now we're going to do this year what we did last year because all of you should be doing it. We're going to buy the half point and get, South Alabama, USA at plus seven because that's where you're going to have the game and that's where I'm going to have the game uh, tomorrow. But that line sitting there at six and a half is just begging you to play Tulane, a team the last time we saw them beat USC in the Cotton Bowl, beat Caleb Williams, the Heisman Trophy winner, 46-45 to in the Cotton Bowl. Tulane lost Spears, but they've got a lot coming back. Uh, this was a hell of a football team, but so was South Alabama last year. They've got 18 of their 22 starters coming back off of a team that went 10 and two last year in the regular season. Two losses. By a combined five points. They lost at UCLA in the Rose Bowl. By the way, I had South Alabama that week in the smell test, plus I think it was 15 or 16. They lost 32-31. And then they lost at home to Troy. By the way, I had Troy in that game, if I recall. I think I did. Um, 10-6, they lost that game. So this was a good football team, but nobody really knows that. People remember Tulane. Uh, and the season that Tulane had., uh, so the public loves that game. this is this really is the prototypical smell test pick. You know, the public's lined up on one side, the line sitting there at six and a half, continuing to bait people into taking Tulane more and more and more. Uh, I like South Alabama plus the this, this you know, plus the seven by the half point. I think they've got a good chance to win the game. Outright. Uh, And then lastly, let's go to Monday night. The Labor Day night game is Duke hosting Clemson. Duke hosting a nationally televised standalone Labor Day night game against Clemson. Uh, I would imagine Duke's going to have the biggest crowd. That they've ever had. They had a great season last year. They've got an NFL quarterback in Riley Leonard, um, who's back this year. Uh, look, they got they, you. You can sit there and talk about Duke's season last year and who they didn't play, and you know, did they get lucky in some of the games that they won? Um, they they won, you know, nine games last year. They won a bowl game. They crushed UCF in the bowl game. Uh, so. Uh, I like the 13 uh, with Duke at home. Uh, That's the play. Uh, The public's all over Clemson. You know, it's funny about these seasons, and when you get, you know, six, seven months from seasons ending, you just kind of forget what happened the year before. Duke was a good football team last year, and they return a lot of their good players, including their best player, Riley Leonard. Uh, Leonard, by the way, 6'4", 212 pounds, a lot of Daniel Jones in him, had a hell of a year. I've seen some mock drafts try to get him into the late portions of the first round. Uh, It'll depend on what kind of year he has this year. Um, But watch Duke and watch Riley Leonard against a Clemson team, and Stanford Steve talked about them yesterday. Um, he's not really sure about them. He doesn't think they'll be nearly as good defensively as they've been. And they didn't take advantage of some of those really good uh, defensive teams. Although I I do feel better about Klubnik than I do um, uh, DJU, uh, who's now at Oregon State. Um, So there you go. First smell test of the year. Fresno State plus four at Purdue, Iowa minus 25 against Utah State, Toledo plus 9 at Illinois, South Alabama buying the half point plus 7 at Tulane, and Monday night, Duke plus 13 against Clemson. Santana Moss next, right after these words from a few of our
0: sponsors. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate
2: This segment of the show brought to you by our good friends at Shelly's Backroom, 1331 F Street, Northwest in D.C., the home of the best cigar, one of the best bars, and one of the real underrated menus uh, in town as well. Bacon-wrapped shrimp for dinner, how does that sound, followed by key lime pie for dessert, maybe a conversation with somebody like Tom Levero. I guarantee you he is chomping at the bit to get to Shelley's next week after being out of the country for a month. That is at the top of his list. Uh, if you're looking for a place to have a cigar, have a drink, have a great conversation, have a great lunch or dinner, Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, Northwest. All right, jumping on with me right now. Number eighty-nine, Santana Moss. Uh, we are just over a week away from the opener. He's been paying attention. He's been out there a bunch. So let's just cut to the chase. Uh, what do you think of Sam Howell? And is there anybody that he reminds you of?
3: You know what, Fred? <laughs> Fred, you know he he has all the fans, and <laughs> he says he has a little Tony Romo in him, and. I kind of see what Fred sees when it just comes to the the escapability. Tony Romo was one of those guys that, you know, and I'm quoted, you know, during my last few playing years, I remember telling folks when I used to hear so much flack about, you know, the Cowboys and their quarterback situation, but it wasn't about Tony Romo. I feel like Tony Romo was one of those, he was one of those quarterbacks that they kind of didn't give the full benefit of the doubt. Um, I actually liked him as a, a passer. And I would have loved to catch passes from him. So when I watch Sam and see some of the things he's done thus far in his career, I see what Fred sees. But I think he has a he has a little, you know, he's a little more quick twitched up when it comes to you know uh, escaping the pocket. I think he's a little faster than Tony. But he has a strong arm and he's been precise, man. I mean, that's one of the things that jumped off you know the page to me this 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 preseason watching him in practice and then watching him you know transfer everything he did in practice over to the preseason games, he he's he shown a lot of accuracy. And that's big, especially for a young quarterback, and it's big for receivers to know that the quarterback is going to pin that ball on their chest or put it in a nice spot for them to catch it with their hands.
2: You know, I thought you were going to actually give me a different comp, which is why I asked it. I thought you might say he is a more mobile version of Rex Grossman. And the only reason okay. I say that is – Isn't there kind of a personality – I don't want to say personality. uh, um, He's not a personality comp because Rex was more outgoing. But in terms of on the field, just being fearless.
3: You know what, I I mean, I see – you know, one one of the things about, you know, kind of – because, you know, every year you get someone in, there, whether they're a receiver, quarterback, lineman, you say – you compare them to someone that you had here in the building before. Although Tony Romo didn't play with us, we played played against him a lot. Right. So I understand why Fred, you know, can give him that comparison. But Rex is a good one too. I just feel like the ball that he throws and Rex thro- that Rex throws is totally different. Uh, Rex had one of those balls. It was almost like Charmin. He he just knew how to loft it up there, and it just was like his his timing was unbelievable at times, and the ball was always perfectly placed. I think Sam has a little more heat coming from behind his arm, so. That's one of the reasons why I can't can't give him that, that comparison. But when it comes to just being gutsy and how they play, yeah, I wish Rex had, you know, uh some escapability because we had bad office alignment with him, and if he could have more time, man, I would have more bigger numbers because Rex was he was a pretty good quarterback to me.
2: Yeah, I mean I, I know that you always liked him. Um you know, and just talking about the quarterbacks that you played for, who who had the strongest arm of the quarterbacks that you played with here?
3: It has to either be McNabb or RG3. Those two guys, um, and I'm going to give it to McNabb because I think he was a little more seasoned, older. He had that old man strength. I mean, his ball used to, RG's used to hum, and he used to hurt because it was normally, you know, pro, you know, and, and I don't want to say it's not, perfectly placed but you know when you're a young guy you're not worried about being accurate you are worried about getting that ball out the way you've been getting it out so RG would throw it just and just don't care how he threw it just knowing he putting heat behind it and he was so young um it, it was different you know playing with McNabb because I guess because by him being a little more seasoned he understood when you looked at him with your eyes big saying like that was too hard and he would ask you before you even get to tell him about it, he's like, Tanner, that's too hard. I'm like, Yes, so take something off it. So McNabb would laugh about it and take a little off it. RG, that was his throw. That was his that was the way he did things. So he was too young to kind of give him that kind of analysis on his ball and sometimes you just be like, hey man, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> you know, <laughs> take care of my fingers and I broke two fingers messing with R G and that, <laughs> that damn ball he had. But at the same time, you know, uh, it just goes to show you how a seasoned quarterback would take that, and a guy who's young and not not understanding that you know his strengths yet. You know what I mean? Like RG was so good with doing the things that he did well. You didn't want to kind of critique too much of that. Let him just play football, and if you get one of those balls that's humming, come down with it. Uh, but I would have to give the nod to uh, you know McNall. I Man, his ball was like you know it was heavy too. It was real heavy, and but the one thing I can say about him. Like I said, you give him that look, like your eyes big, and you walk him back to the huddle, he automatically knew that that ball had a little too much heat on it, and he's going to come to you a little softer next time.
2: So, how, because so many of us have heard so many of you guys talk about Sam's arm strength. How does yeah. Sam's arm strength compare to McNabb's and RG3's?
3: Well, I haven't caught a pass from him yet, so I definitely can't compare it. But when I listen to the other guys talk about it, they give them praise about bringing it or getting it in there in tight situations, tight spots. But the one thing that hasn't popped up is that it's not catchable. You know what I'm saying? So that's a great sign. If, if you can catch it and he's putting some heat behind it, that's great because that's what you want. Like, And when you say catchable, people you know might think, well, you know, kind of saying that these guys had hard – throws or you know, heavy throws or heavy arms or whatever it may be, and some of them was hard to catch, some of them wasn't. Trust me, most quarterbacks sure have the kind of heat that these guys I'm talking about have. But when I say catchable, meaning that as long as you put it in the area of a receiver to be able to catch with his hands in a timely fashion, then he should catch it. No matter how hard you throw it, how, how, how much heat it is behind it, we are receivers. We in the National Football League or collegiate, wherever you're at, you should be able to catch those balls. Now, what makes them hard to catch when it's late or it's high and it's behind you and you're trying to get to your spot or, or you don't got to your spot and the ball just not there on time? We, With the NFL, those guys you're running the routes on, you only could beat them but so long, you know, and now they're recovering. If that ball's not on time, then it's going to be a difficult pass for you to catch.
2: Of the quarterbacks you played with, who got the ball to you when you should have gotten the ball and on time?
3: Mark Brunel. Mark Brunel and Vinny Testaverde, and I and I can't say you know you put. See, I didn't get a chance to play with McNabb that much, but McNabb for the little bit of time we had, man, it was special just seeing that. You see, McNabb got to the point he played with me. This was what, year that was year ten or eleven. It was 2010, so I believe it was probably my 11th yeah, year or something like that. 2010, yeah. And yeah, so he knew what '89 have done over the years of just watching me play, you know. So he was just coming to me because he knew, like, okay, he's gonna—I trust him uh, with with Benny um, Testaverde and Mark Brunell. I was a young pup with Benny, and I was in New York, and Benny just knew me from Miami, and he knew I was eager to go out there and make plays. After missing my rookie season, and when he got the chance to go, he one day told me in a game, like, "Hey, I might need you backside, you know." And you know, as a receiver, you always open, <laughs> even when you're You tell you tell the quarterback, "Yeah, I was open." Right. And when he said that, I told him, "Yeah, I'm open. I'm wide open." So he came to me, so I had to make him right when he came to me, and I and I made a play, and so I gave him the confidence that okay, I can trust this young guy, and he's a Miami guy, and I know he can stretch the field. So. Benny would come to me backside, and before you know it, that was my first 1,000-yard season, you know. Um, I started in week four or week five of that season with him, and before you know it, I had 1,000 yards that year. So, you know, man, you know those guys just know how to get the ball to the guy that's going to make the play, and that's what Mark did. I had, I told guys the story about me and Mark Brunell. I knew Mark. I've been watching Mark Bunnell when I was in, you know, high school, middle school, and he was with Jacksonville. I probably was in high school at the time. He was with Jacksonville and him and Jimmy Smith and uh Keenan McCardell, my I mean, I watched those guys so much on you know on the weekends being a Florida kid, being a guy from Miami. And so when I got a chance to play with him, I'm just saying to myself, this is Mark Grinnell, this is somebody I grew up watching. So I was thrilled just to be on his team. But when he tried into the game that first game we played Chicago, my first year, you know, first year as a Redskin in Washington. I had no clue what to expect. Right. And before you know it, it was like a match made in heaven, man. He just knew this I guess he watched enough of me in practice and saw how I was getting open for Ramsey. And he just came came with me with the ball. He he, he just found me with the ball every time. And before you know it, we had that same chemistry that me and Benny had had in New York. He would just tell me, Tanner, you open backside? I got you, Mark. And he would just throw the ball. And one of those games, if you want to, you know, think about it. The play that I made in the Jacksonville game yeah, and I won overtime. the game in overtime, I he asked me about their route in the first quarter. And I told him I was open, which I was. They gave me man-to-man, and I beat the guy off the line of scrimmage, and I had a go route, and he could have threw it to me. But Cooley was wide open, so Cooley made the play. He come back to me in that same play, different coverage, and he just said, hey, he was open last time. I'm going to throw it to him this time. And I had to make him right. This time it was a, a – a, a, I believe it was two under – they had a guy over the top and a guy underneath me and I just saw the ball go up and I said, hey, I gotta make them right. So those are guys I love because when you watch my career playing, it wasn't it wasn't always I was gonna be in the the whole, you know, uh whatever you call it, progression right. of things. But the good quarterbacks or the quarterbacks is just no ball, they found the guy that's gonna make the play. And that's what I, I always loved, those guys that made me You know who I was because you're nothing without your quarterback, and them the guys that gave me a chance to be special.
2: You know, going back to the first game that you guys played together in 2004, uh, you know, I'm sorry, 2005, um, because he was with Lavernius in 2004, you came in 2005. Um, you know, you guys didn't score a touchdown, but you beat the Bears, remember, nine to seven yeah. in that opener. Mm-hmm. And then of course the next week is one of the memorable games in franchise history, the Monday Night Miracle. But I'm just curious, you know, no touchdowns through seven quarters of that season, and really seven seven and a half quarters. Seven and three quarters quarters uh, before you guys connected twice in the fourth quarter in that unbelievable, you know, uh, uh, end. But what was it like before those two connections in the the legendary, you know, uh, Brunel to Santana twice in the final few minutes of the game in Dallas to win at 14-13? What was it like through those first seven plus quarters where you guys hadn't scored a touchdown And by the way, in the Dallas game, you really hadn't Mm -hmm. even moved the ball.
3: Bingo. Mm -hmm. I mean, honestly, man, I love telling stories like this because fans and folks who watch the game or cover the game, they expect it to be something dramatic. Like, oh, my God, (laughs) we're pressing. We're trying to do something. We haven't scored a touchdown yet. You're just playing football. You're not even conscious of what's going on. You're just trying to move the ball and be, you know, know, be the offense that you want to be. And so we hadn't. I paid no attention to we hadn't scored a touchdown yet. I was so busy being pissed the, the entire Dallas game that that week of Dallas, man, um, Coach Gibbs ran me into my tongue, was literally hanging, dragging, you know, when I left the practice field that last Friday, that Friday before the game, because he just – I put in – we put in a bunch of new plays, and I told him, I say, look, man, when I was in New York, Aaron Glenn was our top cornerback, and he – Aaron Glenn followed me my whole rookie training camp. He like, hey, I'm going to get you better. And, I mean, when I tell you, me and him, we had battles. And then I ended up getting hurt right before we played the first preseason game, so I no longer was practicing with him, but I just watched him closely. And every game we would play certain guys, and I know it was one guy that was like his kryptonite, and it was Marvin Harrison. And Marvin ran the Dino route, and I put it in that week. I said, coach, we need to run this route. Aaron Glenn could not cover Myra Harrison with that. I thought of myself as a young, fast guy that had the same kind of speed or probably faster as Marvin Harrison. So we put the play in and we put some more plays in that I felt that we should be able to run with Aaron being out there. And we didn't run him the whole game. And so come fourth quarter with two minutes left in the game, Portis is just like, I guess he had done, he had done put his, you know, he checked the clock. We're like, oh, well, man, we got to, you know, we'll take this flight back home and get ready for next week. And he asked me, what's wrong with me? And I'm looking at him like, we got two minutes left. You mean, what, what you mean next week? Like, we can run nothing I asked for. And before you know it, he walks off and he comes back with Coach Gibbs. And Coach Gibbs asks me, do I want to run the Dino? So I'm like, <laughs> I look at the clock like, I mean, if that's going to make me happy, that's what you're trying to ask me, I guess, Coach. You know, I'm not even tripping now because we're losing. I just feel like I did nothing. And, you know, lo and behold, man, that, that play was sparked it. I scored off of that one. I I um I tell folks, if you watch that that whole replay closely, when you see me when I get up from the touchdown, I kind of just throw my hands in the air like, oh, well, at least I, at least I got the touchdown out of this game. You know, not knowing that when I got to the sideline, Coach Gibbs was going to tell me, get ready. If we get the ball back, we're going back at him. So that's how all that transpired, man. And it's just like one of those stories that I'll never forget because, you know, it's a matter of seconds how things just turn like that. And it did that, that Monday night.
2: That's really that's that's so interesting. You know what's so funny about that is before the first. First of all, were both of those touchdowns? One was a thirty-nine yarder. The other one was a seventy-yarder on first and ten. Were both of them? Mm-hmm. Because the first one, you know, was a fourth and fifteen. You know, you were down to basically your last play, down thirteen, nothing. Last
3: play. So, what
2: mm-hmm. were they both the same play?
3: No, so one of them so the first one was the Dino route. He he, he called the Dino route for me. Uh, I don't know the whole play that we called cuz it's been so many years, right. but I knew that, you know, individual it was my individual route tag to it, so we knew the ball was coming to me. And I ran the Dino and normally when when I when I put that play in throughout the week, it was closer. You run that play in the red zone. That's how Marvin Harrison ran it. He ran it within the red zone like in the 25 and then and so when he called it, when we was, like, fourth and something, I'm like, yeah, we just, we just saying F it right now. <laughs> but at the same time, I'm one of those guys, hey, no quit. Until that, said I see zero. So I was programmed that way. I'm like, hey, I'm just going to run this route. And if you watch it closely, I was expecting the ball so much earlier. And you saw Mark just being a veteran. He just hung it up there like, hey, man, I'm just going to sling this thing. And who knew that I was just going to see it and say, okay, turn on those go-go gadget feet. And I went and got the ball. <laughs> and and I think it surprised both the safety and the corner that I was able to turn on that gear and go get it. And it surprised me a little bit, too, because I didn't expect Mark to throw it that deep. But I just knew if you give me an opportunity, I got to go try at least attempt for it, you know. But uh, the second one was just a beeline post. Yeah. We saw how they was playing. And Coach Gibbs said, we get the ball back. We're going right back at, you know, Roy Wing. He's playing flat with it back there. He has no respect for what we do in the passing game. So that second one was all because of how Roy Williams had been playing the, the entire game. Flat footed, he was taking everything. Every time we play action with him, he was coming up. So we just gave it to him because we saw that he didn't want to respect the pass.
2: God, I mean, th- that's that's really um, that's great information and in detail about those two plays. You know, it really was. The, the the play so there are two plays that is that really made it possible down 13 nothing before the first one my memory is and I'm trying to pull up the play by play right now um is that there was like a 3rd and 30 and Brunell ran for like yeah. 28 yeah. yards and you guys had a 4th mm-hmm. and short and you got it and then your yep. touchdown I remember was 4th and 15 Um, Mm -hmm. and, uh, so you guys were right there on the brink of the game being over, you know, if Mark doesn't make that long run, uh, if, if, if the fourth and 15, if you don't look up, you know, if Mark doesn't throw it where he throws it. And then when you got the ball back, it was like game on, but still it was so shocking Santana, you know, we all are, are football fans. Very, very infrequently, do you see a a team that can't score, can't move the ball all game long, and then in their final two drives, they strike gold on bombs? You know, that just doesn't happen. And it was so shocking. And and the only thing I'd ask is just do you remember – after the one that gave you the lead, the game wasn't over yet um, because Dallas, mm-hmm. you know, had uh, two more opportunities, and Sean had the big hit on—I think it yeah. was Creighton. Um, but uh,
3: yeah, he had yeah, Creighton, and then he, I think I think he tackled um, Terry Glenn. Terry Glenn. End. He got the last catch. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so it was Creighton but, and Terry. But Glenn. what
2: was—I mean, what was it like to be a part of that at the end of that game when you guys, you know, won it?
3: Man, it was surreal. <laughs> Honestly, you got to understand something um Seeing and it's just the person who I've had always been, great things happen to good people. And I say that, and then people have their own way of, you, know, you know, different than that. But I just felt like for the, the way I got to Washington from even when I was supposed to come to Washington as a, you know, a draft pick, and how it just full circle, and I still got there. And the year that I had to get me there before I got there, I remember me and Dan talking, and he was like, bro, after that playoff run you just had, he said, you know, Dan had been trying to trade for me every year since my rookie year because he wanted me as a rookie, but Schadenheimer wanted the taller receiver, so he picked Rod Gardner in front of me. That's why the Jets moved up to the 16th pick and got me right after the Redskins picked Rod Gardner because they just knew that I was going to Washington. Mm-hmm. Me too. Everyone I talked to that week was saying Washington. So, long story short, every year I, I was hearing when I was home in the offseason, you know Dan Snyder called trying to trade for you. You know Dan Snyder called trying to trade for you. You know... And the last year was the only year he didn't try, and I got there. I still ended up getting traded there. So it was just crazy how all that transpired. And then for me to be the guy that made that play the second game of the season, you know, for us to, you know, one, give Dan Snyder or give the organization their first win in Dallas since who knows when. And to spark that season, the way we sparked that season, man, it was just one of those things I – I'm one of those guys I believe in all that type of stuff. So I really walked out of that stadium, stunned a little bit, but at the same time looking up at the skylight, this is one of those moments again that I've been a part of before when things came my way because of some of the things that went on that got me to where I was at. And I was just thrilled, man. That was like and to me, that was like, here I go. You know what I mean? If you haven't known yet, here I go. And I know I knew after that game it was gonna be hell for everybody who faced us because they just showed – I I just show and and we just show what they can do with me. And so every week it was just so special to go into practice because now Coach Gibbs understands what he has. He's like, he was just making up plays now for me, like, hey, can you run this route? Can you run this route? Can you (laughs) run this route? And I'm like, I can run them all, Coach. And so that's what we did the entire season that year. We scrapped the whole passing game, and we would get everything that the team, you know, before us played, and we would use their plays. If it was good, if it worked, we ran everybody else's passing game just so I can have, a wider option of things to do in that offense.
2: Interesting. I mean, because, of, you know, from that game forward, you guys, you know, st- took off offensively. You had the – you scored 50-plus yeah. against the Niners. You had the mm-hmm. the big game against Tampa that you lost on that all-stop two-point yep. conversion, which wasn't a two-point conversion. And then you guys exactly. ran the table at the end of the year, obviously, after those close losses against the Raiders and the Chargers um, at home. But, you know – um, there's so, I just had I had a thought, and I just thought, oh, so back to, well, first of all, you know, Clinton takes credit for getting you to Washington because Lavernius wanted yep. out, and Clinton claims yep. and has always claimed to me that he went to Gibbs and said, just send him to, to New York and bring Santana yep. here. Um, so you believe that, right? Is that true?
3: That's the story. He's not lying. Yeah, I got a call from Clinton. I got a call from Clinton at the end of the year. Matter of fact, we was all hanging out. We, was, we, we, we we would all come back to Miami when the season's over with. And if anyone knew me back in those days when I was real young, they used to call me angry, man, from college all the way up until, I guess, until I got a, a little, you know, later in my 20s. I used to just be angry about everything. And I, I just had you? that, I guess, was my, yeah, man. I mean, you probably won't believe it, but trust me, the guys who knew me, they knew. They would call. And so Clinton saw me one night. We getting ready to go out and I'm still, it's lingering. Like, whatever I just went through, we went to the second-round playoffs that year, but I was pissed because prior to us making it to the second-round playoffs, they wasn't throwing me the ball in New York. And you got to think, I had just came off 1,100 yards the season before. So we stand here like, why are you not getting the ball? And I just didn't understand it. But that was my introduction into how they do things in the NFL. If you got off, a year before, or whatever year it was, and you got a you got a you got a payday coming up. They're going to milk you because they don't want you to break the bank, and so that's what they did that year. My 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 last year in New York, they wasn't throwing me the ball. And Quincy, it took for Quincy Carter came over from the Cowboys. He was like our fourth screen quarterback because Chad went down, Benny went down. I'm not even sure if Benny was there then, but whoever else, I think it was Benny. Benny went down. We had some other guy named Mark Bowden, Lee. believe yeah. he went down. And Quincy Carter was, me and him came in the same draft class. So we would talk a lot. And he would come to practice and say, hey, Moss, I don't know what's going on with you and the coaching staff, but, bro, I'm watching film and you're wide open. And they ever put me in a game, I'm throwing you everything. That was, that's the way he gave it to me. And I told him, I said, man, you know, this is my contract year. This is my last year before my, you know, you know they, supposed, they promised me to talk new money coming into this season. And he said, that's what's going on. So, long story short, that year we was up and down too, but we had a chance to make a run for the playoffs. And all the quarterbacks go down, Quincy comes in. I'm not sure if it was 100 yards every game, but it was just about. I think the last four games I played with Quincy that year, uh, 2004, we made a run with me and him just making play after play after play. And I think I had at least. If it won 200 yard games in that those last four, it's probably probably all four. But we got off together, man. That was that would push us in the playoffs. So, you know, that's what was on my mind going into that that offseason, like, man, they effed me, you know, they really tried me. And then the playoffs, I had a great playoff run. I had a hundred yards the first game against San Diego with a touchdown. And then I asked um Herm Meltworth, which they was mad with me about pay, you know, being a punt returner. I took myself off a of punt return that year because I felt like, okay, you want to dig me, I'm going to dig you guys. You know, you want me more as a punt return anyway, so I'm not doing it. So I didn't do it. And it was many other reasons because, of, you know, you know, for me not to do it. My hamstring was kind of lingering. You know, it was bad the whole year. So I wanted to be more to the, to the offense than I was to the special teams. But playoff time come, I feel a little better. I was rested. And I'm like, hey, you guys want me a punt return. I'll go back there this week and I'm going to run it back. That's what I told Hermel was, and he laughed. You know, herman was a good guy. He laughed I'm like, "All right, you asked for it." They put me back there. My second punt return in that Pittsburgh game. I runs the back for a touchdown, I believe, eighty-seven yards. It's the first jet punt return in the playoffs. So, you know, all that stuff was in me. Seventy-five yard, seventy-five
2: yard like, punt return. By the way, just just so you know, because I just pulled out the box score, Chad Pennington was the
3: quarterback. Yeah, he was a quarterback in the playoffs. He okay. he got back healthy. Yeah, exactly. got it, Got it. He got back healthy the last two those those two playoff games. He was back from his little, his, you know, his little uh, short break.
1: Right. But um,
3: yeah, man, all that stuff just kind of was lingering around. And I was with Porters, and I told him how you know I feel like I could have had way more yards. I caught eight hundred something yards that year for almost thirty. I think I had thirty-five catches or forty catches. You, you, you probably can pull it yeah, up. right Yeah, I'm, I'm
2: pulling it up right now. Hold on. Um, in 2004. You had Four. 45 receptions for 838 yards, 18.6 yards per catch.
3: And and Coles had 100 catches for 900-something yards. And Porter said to me, Coles had double your catches, and you only had 100 yards short of him, so right. you want to come to us? And I said, yeah, you can make it happen. That's how it all started.
2: Um, You want to know something uh, that's also interesting? The Chargers team that you guys beat in the first round of the playoffs was coached Mm -hmm. by Marty Schottenheimer, who still to this day, Santana, I think – that was Dan's biggest, single biggest football mistake, was firing Marty after one year, because they started and 5 in 2001, ended up eight and eight with Tony Banks at quarterback. Um, and Marty wow. just Marty won everywhere he went. But that game was yeah, a good.: coach. That game ended with their kicker, Nate Cading missing like a 30-yard field goal which is why the game went yep. to overtime, and you guys won it in overtime. Marty had the worst luck in the regular season, yeah. the worst <laughs> luck ever. Um, and, uh, yeah, so, um, wow, uh, good stories. All right, let's get back to this team. So, back to Sam Howe. So, you're, you're, you're optimistic, and I think a lot of you guys are optimistic based on what you've seen. Yeah. But what are you concerned about?
3: I'm just concerned about his youth. You know, that's more than anything. I think with any quarterback when they're young, you know, I want him to understand that this game isn't peaches and cream, which I'm pretty sure he knows. But I want him to understand the things that he go through, the moments when he have his highs and his lows. Embrace them both and just stay level, stay in the middle, because it's going to be those games. And just like the game we just talked about, how how we did nothing and won, you know, in that Monday Night Miracle game, that's. That's the NFL in a nutshell. If you win, you're you're going to be in more games like that than games where you just dominate and win the game. As long as you give yourself a chance to be in the game, anyone can win the game at the end. And I want him to understand, and I hope, I'm happy that we have a guy like Eric B. Because I know Eric is going to tell him everything he needs to know about this game, and especially in those critical moments when he might not be playing his best, but all we need is a play. Sam, dig deep. All we need is a play. You don't need to do nothing extra. Just either if you see it, take it. If you don't see it, use your feet. You know what I mean? And those that's what I'm worried the most about because I want to see if he can overcome that early. I want to see a see a game or two where, okay, it doesn't look great, but we're in it. And can he just go to the sideline, recoup, look at what's going on, and then get out there and give us that drive or that play that's going to re you know, reboot everything and give us that victory.
2: So true. Um, you know, you don't know uh, until he's out there doing it whether or not he will handle the adversity yeah. that inevitably is going to come with a young quarterback. It comes with every young quarterback. Their ups and downs and how they handle the downs is so crucial. What do you think this offense will look like? Man, I think that's
3: the, <laughs> that's the number one question there. Of the year right now, and that's something that I'm I'm waiting to see. Um, if we just anything like where where Eric, you know, uh, um, you know, EB comes from, it's it can be it it can be potent. We it, we it can really be dynamic. I just feel like it's gonna be predicated though on what we do up front, and I think that's just to me the outright. Um, you know, that's what's gonna be the whole that's going to be the one thing that's going to solidify my thought process right now with how good we can be. I want to see the guys up front, how they play week one. And each week, each week is not going to be the telling story. So, you know, until you get into like mid-season players when you start seeing seeing the true colors of the team. Right. But every week I want to see these guys, you know, I don't want to sit here and say dominate because you just can't dominate everybody in the NFL. But I want to see them handle their business because if you can protect for Sam, he can throw the ball around. We gonna have a lot of options, and if you can protect for the run game, which I feel like we probably do that better than our pass protection right now, we should be well too. We have we have great great backs. All three of them can run the ball pretty you know pretty well. But some of the things that I've seen from this offense already, we don't have to necessarily get behind you know the center and run the ball. We have plays where you can you know hidden plays where you can get the ball into the running back's hands now. And those are like hidden runs, just getting them into screens and getting them into little flare outs and stuff like that. That's what this offense allows you to do when you have, you know, the you know, that West Coast style but spread out spot style of Andy Reid that we saw from, you know, um Philly all the way over to Kansas City.
2: Receptions, reception yardage, and reception touchdowns. Assuming that Terry and Jahan play all 17 games and Terry's toe injury is a you know is a is a concern right now at least for the opener. Yeah. But assuming they're both healthy, who leads the team in each one of those categories?
3: Oh man. Oh, that's a good one. Um it's hard man to say because you know right now I think it's going to be um off the bat just if I had to ask that answer that question, and I have no clue. So <laughs> it's, it's
2: fine, it's fine. But just take yeah. take a swing at it because I think it'll tell people what you think of their receiving situation to a certain degree.
3: If if Terry's out there all 17 games, I have no reason to, you know, um, believe that he wouldn't be the team leader in reception, um, and yards. To tell you the truth. But, and this is why I wanted to say this, but if Terry is not getting the look or if he is getting most of the look, look out because Jahan, Dotson, route your mama, your grandmama, your granddaddy, everybody who they put in front of up. And I just feel like that's the guy, like, when it comes to just – he's he has something that a lot of receivers don't have. And I know the team sees it already because you saw how they've been using them, you know, in the preseason. The man could just run every route and he knows how to get himself open. I mean, you watch his college fam, it's no different from watching him in the pros right now. He's just open all the time. So Sam already knows that and if Terry's out there with him, Terry's gonna get that double team because they know he's a dog over there and he has to be checked by two. Jahan might have a field day on everybody. And if it happens that way the way that we see it, which it never happens the way we see it then Jahan will get the double team and then Terry will get off. That's why I say I believe Terry might get off and just have big numbers because as much as we want Terry to be double because he's just that number one guy he's a guy that you have to reckon with, Jahan is just too good for you not to double him. So you want to leave a guy like Terry open and that's that's the wrong thing to do.
2: That's that's see I I think that's a great a really interesting answer um you know it's also something that Cooley told me last year he said Terry's great but Jahan's the one that's going to have to be game planned for you know and that's yeah. that's kind of what you're saying like be- believe yeah. it or not people Jahan's the one that's going to have to be doubled
3: yeah Jahan is like one of those guys that you know Terry is just one of those guys you got to say you know Terry's here like okay let's go. I'm gonna I'm give you an example. Terry is Pierre Garçon all over again. Like he's just a dog. Like right. it, then whatever we throw at him, he's gonna catch it. He's gonna bulldoze. Like Pierre was a pit bull. He would bulldoze over your DBs. He would he would fight them. You know he would go crack your crack your leading linebacker. He didn't he didn't care. But he just made plays. And then you had you know a slew of other guys that can just you have the game plan for you. Okay, you got Santana still in the slot. Uh, who we had on the outside. Well, Deshaun, we had, well, Deshaun, and, and
2: Deshaun there, fast, there for a little bit. No, I was
3: going to get to that. I was going to get to that. Yeah. Fast forward, my last year, it was Pierre and Deshaun show. Right. So, Deshaun, you have the game plan for. Pierre still going to beat you. You know what I mean? So, it was one of those things. I feel like we have that same thing going on now, but we have a third guy and a fourth guy. So, what are you going to do with those guys? You see what I'm saying? So, yeah. you might get both of those guys being one, Being that team's going to say, we're going to make you know, uh Curtis Samuel beat us. We're gonna make uh, you know, Deami beat us. Cause we're gonna make sure we got two guys on these these other two guys. Teams do that, it's still gonna get beat because now you have a tight end to worry about and running back to worry about. So there's no there's no answer for all that stuff that we have. That's why I say it's it's very vital for our offensive line to be on point and just protect. Because if you protect, Sam should be able to throw for five I mean four thousand. I'm not gonna jump the gun and say five, but at least four thousand with all the weapons we have. Yeah.
2: By the way, the other guy that had to be dealt with was Jordan Reed when he was healthy. <laughs> um Exactly. So uh all right. Um what about uh what about tight end? Do you, are you do you think Logan bounces back or does this become the Cole Turner show? And I'm talking about as a pass catching tight end.
1: Mm,
3: that's a good question. I think Cole Turner has potential. Um who knows what he's going to do when he gets out there and and everything, you know, on the line now. But I, but just seeing what I've seen, the the sample size, I saw, I, I, you know, I was impressed with him last year before he got injured. So I I do believe that he can, he can be somebody that we, we lean on. I just feel like I got to see the total package. I got to see what he does in the big scheme of things, you know, when it comes to blocking, when it comes to being a decoy, you know, I want to see all of that before I give him the nod, but I haven't gave up on Logan yet. Logan Thomas is still a phenomenal threat. Uh, before he tweaked the little calf, which, which happens to guys that have knee injuries and stuff like that. Man, trust me, I tore my knee in you know my rookie year, and that's when I started tearing hamstrings and gro- groins and quads. You name it, it just came with the territory because of that knee. So I hope he gets the right kind of treatment or treatment team around him. That hey, just keep this soft tissue stuff you know at bay. So you can go out there and be special because I saw him show signs of the Logan that, 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 that led our team, you know, a few years back. I mean, he was looking phenomenal in camp before the little cow popped up.
2: Flip it over to the defensive side of the ball for a second. Uh, You know, all of the concerns about Emmanuel Forbes draft time, about his size, about his weight, et cetera. What have you seen so far from him in camp?
3: I care less about his size and stuff. I know all of that might pay a factor, you know, one day, who cares, who knows. Um but I just feel like in, in the game we play now, the cornerbacks are not as not as aggressive as they used to be. <laughs> they don't they don't bump and run as much as they do. You know, uh when they tackling, they you know, they're not, you know, taking crazy, you know, angles on tackles. They they know how to be smart and play the position and know who to tackle, who not to, who to get in the way of and who not to. So I think that'd be something that he, he knows how to, you know, maneuver with when it comes to his size. But playmaking ability, he reminds me of Jahan Dawson, that cornerback. Mm-hmm. That's that's I'm, I'm, I mean, and it's just I'm not saying that he's a he just has a way about playing that position smoother than any other body that I've ever seen play it. And and it's a lot of guys that play it at a at, at at a high level. But he just seems so confident, so smooth. Just know everything about every route that comes towards him. Like I haven't seen a route that just no one just beat him yet. You know, in practice, just haven't seen it yet. He's he's there. And even if he you have a step on him, he's still there. Like he's just one of those guys he's been showing that from day one. So I'm looking forward to seeing him do big things, man. I really want to see the guys up front, you know, um get out the guys because I know what that can do for our secondary. I've been a receiver for a long time and I tell folks time and time again that I care less who you play that corner or safety. If you have a, a, a serious front front four or five guys and they get out to my quarterback and he doesn't have time, then, you know, cancel Christmas for me because those guys are going to have easy picking. Yeah. And I think that's what our, our secondary is going to have. They're going to have a lot of balls thrown up early and often. So now it's going to be see who got hands and who has the playmaking ability to uh, to get us the ball back.
2: Uh, last one. Are you okay with Dax Milne being the punt returner or were you hoping that Kaz Allen won that job?
3: We was all hoping probably to see somebody different back there. You know, I'm pretty sure my words have, you know, you know, been talked about or said across a couple of people's shows about just what I believe a punt returner needs to have to be back there. But the one thing I do give Dax credit for, so don't don't quote me just yet. I praise Dax for being a a solid receiver. That's what he is. He's a solid receiver and I knew he'll make our team because I feel like he he give us a lot of help in that, that area as being a guy that you can come in fourth or fifth receiver or six or even six if we have six dress that week, he can make plays in the receiver position. And what he also does well while I understand the coaches putting him back there, he makes the right decision in catching the ball. He knows how to catch the ball and get the ball back. Now, what I've said is that if you're a NFL player and you you're a punt returner, catching the ball shouldn't be one of the things that we're worried about. <laughs> you know, that's that's you know, that's like, you know, that's that's a
2: that's a give. That's
3: a layup yeah. for guys like us. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, like we're gonna do that regardless. Uh, what we need to see is a guy that can be a difference maker back there. So, uh, although we don't have that guy right now, I'm okay with Dak being that guy. I think that's gonna get us the ball back. And I do believe that what he saw this year and probably heard, is gonna make him a different guy. He's gonna say, "Hey, I gotta go out there and get at least ten yards, get me a first down." And when he starts doing that, like you know, I didn't expect that much of that last year because I didn't know of his, you know journey or his, you know, his story of being a point returner, it's kind of new. When it's new to you, it's hard for you to expect the guy to do that on that level. So I think now with being in his second year, if he get a chance to go back there again, he will have a new a new uh, energy about the you know, the position and go out there and probably do a little more with it. So I'm not making him, I'm not forcing him to do, do something special. Be you, Dax. Catch the ball first. That's what we need. We need the ball back. But with the leverage that he has and what he's going to have, you should always get a first down, at least.
2: You know, we could do something like what they did with you, which is put Jahan back there in a couple of big spots if they need one. Because mm-hmm. he, yeah. he is he's one of those returners that could absolutely flip the field and turn the game around.
3: Yeah, him or Curtis, Curtis Samuels. Yeah. So I'm, I'm surprised that I haven't seen him back there yet. And I'm not sure if those guys – I know Jahan had a little, you know, experience back there in college. But I would I would assume Curtis being that he's just a guy that he touches the ball and he can do things with it, that's the kind of guy you want back there, a guy that you just have to put the ball in their hands. Because to me, that's the part of Curtis' game that's going to get him going. When you're the third receiver, when you're the slot receiver, although the slot receiver is like the star in position now in our league, you still need the, that guy to get the ball in other ways, you know, because you're going to have the number one and the number two guy getting, you know, the majority of those those attempts. So – you want your slot receiver lathered. You want him to be on the kick return and the punt return. So by the time he gets the ball on the offensive side, it's a big play because he's already game ready, you know, because he done court punts and court kickoffs. But who am I? You know, I'm just telling you what what, <laughs> what we should have going on. Yeah, you know?
2: You've done it before. Uh, thank you for doing this. I appreciate it as always. I, I always enjoy the conversation with you.
3: As always, bro. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you.
2: Santana Moss, everybody. Uh, I really love Santana Moss. I've had a chance to do a number of things with him over the years, including having him on the show a lot. Um, And I can't believe he was actually ever referred to as angry Santana, angry Tana. Uh, because he really is uh, always uh, a very nice uh, and willing um, and very generous guy. Anyway, um, up next, Tim Murray will talk some college football with Murray. We'll get his best over-under win total bets in college football and maybe get a couple of NFL bets from him as well. Uh, That's next right after these words from a few of our sponsors. Tim Murray about to jump on with us. Tim does his show from the Circus Sportsbook studios out in Las Vegas. The Circa Million and the Circa Survivor Pools are still open and available uh, until September 9th. the week from tomorrow, 2 p.m., is the cutoff for $6 million in guaranteed prizes for the Circa Million. Pick five games against the spread every week. Person with the best record at the end of the year takes home a million bucks, but the top 100 pays out. Circa Survivor Pool, $8 million guaranteed to the winners, to the winner or winners. Uh, Pick one team each week. No spread. Have to win. uh, A loss or a tie eliminates you. Last person standing splits the big prize that's 14 million dollars in guaranteed prizes no rake so if the entries go above the guarantee all the extra money will go to the prize pool you've got to register at a circus sports book in nevada weekly picks can be made from anywhere All right, jumping on with me right now is my good friend Tim Murray. Tim is, of course, the co-host with Sean King of Wiesens Prime Time uh, on from 6 to 9 Eastern. Uh, Follow Tim on Twitter to get uh, links to his show, at 1TimMurray. Before we get to talking about what we love to talk about, which is college football, um, this morning it was announced that the ACC uh, has voted... To bring Stanford, Cal, and SMU into the league. I have a reaction to this. What's yours?
4: I mean, my first is it was inevitable, and I'm not surprised. My second is I hate it. I, I don't hate just this move, Kevin. I hate, I've hated all of it, you know, and, and I know you've talked plenty about ACC's move to the Big, or excuse me, Maryland's move to the Big Ten. And at this point, we just kind of accept it. Um, you know, I know money makes the world go round, yada yada yada. You know, spare me all that BS. But I just don't like it. You know, this isn't this isn't what we have, have grown to know. And adapting with the times is you know whatever. But I just, as a college football fan, now I'm not going to do the thing, Kevin. where people are like, I'm not going to watch anymore. No, I'm not. That's, that's crap. I'm, I'm still going to watch college football. I'm still going to watch college basketball. I'm still going to love those sports, but. I mean, the Pac-12 slash Pac-10 used to be, had a had an identity, right? The Big 12 had an identity. Uh, the SEC, et cetera. And I just, I don't like how it's all just all jumbled, you know, who the hell knows who is in what conference, Kevin. So, look, I, you know, I'm happy that Stanford and Cal have found a landing spot in a Power 5 conference, um, you know, especially for Stanford, you know, with all of their, Uh, Olympic sports and how prolific they are. But uh, I just, you know, watching Stanford play Virginia or Rutgers play UCLA or, uh, you know, Cincinnati play Oklahoma State. Like, I don't know, man. I I just, you know, at at this point, Kevin, I really hope Gonzaga joins the Big East for basketball because I think that would actually be pretty awesome. You know, I like having a UConn-Gonzaga game would actually get me going as opposed to like, you know, a random uh, Wednesday night where, hey, welcome to Cameron Indoor, and SMU is playing Duke.
2: Yeah. Uh, I This one of all of them, to me, makes the least amount of sense. Um, b- by the way, I agree with everything you said. It I, Stanford, Cal, and SMU bring zero value. I mean zero value. Okay, you're adding... Um, you're adding the Bay Area, I guess, to the ACC network. But whatever new revenue those three schools bring in, which, by the way, will then get shared by 18 schools, they're going to lose when the three biggest revenue generators leave, Clemson, Florida State, and UNC. You know, because those are the three that voted against this. They got NC State to flip. And by the way, I'll say this about your you know, athletic director – can you imagine being, you know, the Florida State AD or being the North Carolina AD or the Clemson AD? And this guy Swarbrick, who, who you know, is the AD at Notre Dame, he won't even join the league full time, and he's standing up and he's the one going public about bringing in Cal, Stanford, and SMU. And I, I don't know the whole thing. I, I mean, I think Carolina, Florida State, and Clemson are going. I think they've had it with this. Florida State and Clemson are probably going to end up in the SEC, and North Carolina will probably end up in the Big Ten. And to me, if I were the ACC, that's not a trade that I would have ever been willing to make. Now, you might say, well, Clemson and Florida State were going anyway. They were going to go. uh, They were eventually going to join the SEC. um, and, uh, And that may be true. But I don't know that North Carolina was going to go, and I bet you they do end up going now. I may be wrong about that. I could be wrong. But um, now they're splitting all of that revenue with three more schools who bring nothing to the table. Nothing. I mean, it's one thing when you're bringing UCLA, USC, Washington, and Oregon to the Big Ten, or Texas and Oklahoma to the SEC. Bringing Stanford, Cal, and SMU to the ACC provides the ACC with nothing other than, you know, I guess a West Coast outpost and the Bay Area to a certain extent. But Stanford and Cal are to the Bay Area. No, that's a bad analogy. I was going to say what Rutgers is to the New York metropolitan area. That's not true. Stanford and Cal are much bigger and more important in the Bay Area than than Rutgers is to uh, the New York metro area. But I don't know, man. It's just that one of all of them makes the least amount of business sense to me. Maybe somebody can explain it to me. But I, well, I, And I just get a I, kick I out think... of your athletic director, a guy that will not join the league full-time being the one to push for it. By the way, do you know this, too? And I read this um, this morning. Four school presidents in the ACC, four. Not Clemson, Florida State, or North Carolina. Our 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 four school presidents are Stanford or Cal grads, including your guy. Yeah, uh,
4: I did not go to Notre Dame, but <laughs> I am a Notre Dame. fan. Yes, you are. Uh, as you as, as you referenced me and you, um, I'll just say this real quickly. Hey, man, hate us if you ain't us, right? Like you know, if you know, if if the ACC tried to force Notre Dame's hand, you know what they'd say peace out, we're going to the Big Ten. So they know the deal, and, you know, the other, you know, I've I've heard, you know, it was, uh, I think David Cutcliffe you know, got pissed off about Notre Dame and and Pat Narduzzi because he just gets mad at everything at Pitt, and it's like, well, guess what, if you want uh, people to watch your games and you want your stadiums to be packed when that team comes to town, then, you know, you you reap the benefits of uh, of the fact that, you know, Notre Dame comes, uh, you know, once every however many years, but no, I, I think the, the thing that I've started to understand a little bit is, one, SMU said they will not take any money for the first seven years, which is kind of a flex in its own right. Like, yeah, we're good. We got enough oil money. We're we're good. We'll, we'll just... Uh, yeah, there's, we'll there's big money at that different. university. Big money. And then Stanford and Cal are taking 30% the first seven years. Um my understanding is this, Kevin, I think there's a stipulation in the rule or in their negotiations where as long as they're above 15 schools, uh, I think they get to, you know, stay with their current deal or whatnot. There, there's some there's a reason ultimately why AC, the ACC did this, because I think they know the inevitable is coming, that Florida State and Clemson and likely North Carolina go. And, you know, at that point, look, I, I said it on, on Twitter, like, at this point, I'd rather Notre Dame be in the Big Ten, anyways. Um, you know, I, I'd rather bring back those rivalries. USC in the Big Ten now, too, so you can keep that rivalry going. But um, you know, the, the, the funny thing is, you know, I saw Chip Kelly, uh, you know, come out the other day, you know, now UCLA coach, and say this is dumb. He's like, why don't we just regionalize all the Olympic sports and have football kind of be its own entity? And I think at some point. I think that's where we could potentially go, Kevin, uh, and I honestly think that would make the most sense, kind of the Notre Dame model, which is hey, let's stay regionalized for Olympic and, you know, Olympic sports and then just be national for college football. That actually makes sense, but I don't know if we'll ever get there just because of the egos involved. But, you know, at the end of the at the end of the day, you know, it, it's it's all the TV, you know, uh money that has completely shift, shifted college sports and um, you know, we'll we'll see how this all plays out, and you know, you certainly feel for you know the 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 tennis team that has to go across country now on a commercial flight. Like I think it was uh, I think it was, was it Eli Drinkowicz or something like that at Missouri it was like, look, football will be fine. We fly charter planes on the weekends. We're right. fine. He's like the other sports are the ones that have to go. You know a four-hour flight on United on a Wednesday night to, to go play a, uh, you know, a soccer
1: game.
2: Yeah. By the way, um, good job, because I did miss this piece of the story. And I just, as you said it, I'm like, I didn't read that part of the story. Um, that SMU uh, is coming in uh, with uh, without taking revenue for nine years, or media revenue for nine years, and Stanford and Cal 30% of the uh, entire ACC share for seven years, and it jumps to 70% in year eight, 75% in year nine, and then full financial shares in the 10th year. Um, But I think I mentioned, and this is the expectation, is that the three schools combined will bring an incremental 50 to 60 million in revenue. You know, in the larger scheme of things, I, I don't know where that falls in line, but I don't think it's super... It's I, To me, it's not worth losing Clemson, Florida State, North Carolina. But again, no. and I acknowledge, but um, I think, I think was they was may be, so they may be I leaving think, anyway. Yeah.
4: yeah, I think it's more so, uh, you know, understanding the inevitable and trying to avoid the Pac-12 loses UCLA and USC. Uh, I mean, by the way, the Pac-12, uh, their leadership and some of the other presidents at those schools it is a, a master class in how to fuck things up. I mean, it is unbelievable how they screwed that whole entire conference up. They could have salvaged it. They could have gone out and grabbed a couple of other pieces.
2: Malary, they could have Scott. taken yeah. $30 million. Yeah,
4: I mean, they, they got offered $30 million annual from the ESPN, yep. and the story that's out there is some school president was like i think we can get 50 yeah. and they said well give us 50 they said no and the big 12 was like we'll take the 30 million a year thank you very much and now the pac 12 is dead i mean it, it's sad i mean kevin you think about you know I, and i know the rose bowl eventually is you know it's gonna be part of the playoffs anyways but it's like think about the history in that conference some of the great college basketball games and all these other sports and, and football games and You know, everything that we've had in that conference is gone. This is the last year of the Pac-10 slash Pac-12. It is over. It is. It's crazy. Like, we've seen the ACC change its identity with a lot of different pieces, obviously Maryland leaving, et cetera. But at least those conferences still exist. The Pac-10-12 is dead. It is over. It will be gone. Oregon and State and Washington State, I guess, will just go to the Mountain West and and then you wipe your hands and say, all right, we're done. The conference is over.
2: Let's talk some college football. Enough of this. Um, so <laughs> before we get to this weekend's games and the games you like, I've already given out my smell yep. test uh, pick for picks for today. Um, give me the teams that you think will end up in the playoff this year, the final year of four teams being in the playoff.
4: You know, Kevin, it's really hard uh, to, to – pinpoint it and i'm not trying to you know i'll give you a, my four here in just a minute but um you know i am excited you know as much as i just crapped on the pac-12 i think the pac-12 is going to be phenomenal this year uh it may be the best it's been you know we look at the top five or six teams in that conference and you know i think four of them are in the top 15 five of them in the top 20 entering the season uh, but i think they eat each other up i, I think we we missed out on a pac-12 team um and i think It's it's easy to say, and I think Georgia probably gets in. Their schedule is incredibly soft, and if you're twelve and zero going to the SEC championship, you know, regardless of what you think, and you're the two-time defending champs, you're getting in, even if you were to lose to, you know, Alabama or LSU. So my four,
2: um,
4: I'd say Georgia. um, I think I put Michigan in there, even though I feel like they're getting a little bit too much love right now. Um, I really am curious about Penn State. I think they are, are live to make the playoff this year. Uh, but I'll give you my four. I'll go uh, Georgia. I'll go uh, Michigan. I'll go Clemson. And I'll go Ohio State, even though I think you could put Penn State in there, too. I think, you, I think this year sh- sets up where you really could see uh, two Big Ten teams for a second consecutive year. And if Ohio State takes care of business and loses to Michigan, or vice versa, um, you know Ohio State, I think, actually has a pretty good uh, path. Let's say they go eleven and zero and lose to Michigan. You know they'd have road wins at Notre Dame and Wisconsin. They would have beaten Penn State in this hypothetical. So that'll be my four. Uh, I'll go Georgia, Michigan, Clemson, and uh, Ohio State.
2: Give me um, give me a team that's a bit off the radar. Stanford. Steve yesterday gave me. I mean, a massive long shot sleeper for, for a team that would be in the conversation at the end of the season for one of the four playoff berths. You know, a TCU or Cincinnati equivalent or something, you know, close to that. Give me, you know, a team or two off the radar that you really like.
4: Uh, Texas A&M. Um, you know they they recruit at an elite level. Uh, I'll believe it when I see it. But um, I mean, at the, it, it's it's hard to deny the talent that's on that roster. Now they got to get some big wins. But you know Texas A&M beat LSU last year, so they've been kind of a punchline here for for many years. But I think Texas A&M is certainly a team that could be in the discussion if they pull some wins i mean it's not like alabama's quarterback situation is
1: oozing with
4: confidence they haven't even announced the starter right. so i think texas a&m based off its talent is certainly in the discussion penn state's not off the radar at all uh but that's a team that'll be in the discussion uh no doubt about it uh they have plenty of chances uh in their win total you know sitting at nine and a half and then i guess if i want to go really really off the beaten path i think they're There's an opportunity for some Pac-12 teams. Uh, I know Stanford Steve really likes UCLA this year. Um, I'll go Oregon State. Um, I love their schedule. Um, You know, they they lost a really big piece in in Spates, a linebacker who's going to be starting at LSU. But I'm a huge Jonathan Smith fan. Uh, I kind of think the middle finger to the world is going to be up with them being left out of all this realignment. And uh, what – You know, what was the biggest missing piece? If anybody watched Oregon State last year, their biggest missing piece was quarterback. While I don't know what D.J. Uyunglele is going to be this year, Kevin, he is a former five-star. He did set the record for most passing yards for a visiting player at Notre Dame Stadium history when he played that game against Notre Dame in the COVID season when Trevor Lawrence was out with COVID. So if D.J. Uyunglele can hit, they've got the schedule. They've got, I believe – uh, Utah going to Corvallis, UCLA is going to Corvallis, I believe Washington goes to Corvallis, they don't play USD, and then they play Oregon the last game of the season on the road. So the schedule really shapes up well for them. I don't know if they have enough talent, but I think if they pull off a couple upsets, 12-1 and is their record at home, Kevin, uh, straight up the last two years. And uh, they've had renovations going on, so my mega long shot would be Oregon State. But I think talent-wise, To answer that question, it would be someone like Texas A&M because they've been recruiting at an elite level. Uh, They've just continued to step on their own foot.
2: Oregon, Oregon State's a good one, and and the reason you gave is is an interesting one. That game at the end of the year, the Civil War game against Oregon, was really one of the more exciting games of the season uh, last year. They were down, I think they were down twenty one going into the fourth quarter or something like they that.
4: They just ran the ball, they just, just they running just said, the football. Run the ball.
2: They, they yeah. I, I think the quarterback threw like had like four four completions. I got to pull up the box score right now. It was like he was like yeah, four well, I, for six or something like that.
4: While um, you pull up that box score, I mean, I I, I was on – they came to the Las Vegas Bowl last year, Oregon State did, and I was, I was doing sidelines for radio. And, I mean, look, Florida, we saw what they are last night. They're not very good. Um, and they were missing a bunch of pieces. Anthony Richardson didn't play last year, and they looked uninterested. But regardless, they came out and just kicked their ass. Like they said, bring it on, SEC team. So they've kind of got this. You know, yeah. old-school mentality. They've got a badass offensive line. They've got three really good running backs. And, and here's the thing. You know, if you don't believe me, watch them on Sunday. Uh, they play San Jose State standalone game on CBS at 3.30. Uh, I know that's been a – I don't know if that's in your smell test, San Jose State, but no. uh, that's an intriguing op- a spot for a, a home dog. Um, but I, I just – I really like this Oregon State team. Look, it, it could be a situation, Kevin, where nine wins is their ceiling. But I think as a as a super long shot, I love the way the schedule really sets up for them, where they get all the big boys at home prior to the final game of the season, and they don't play USC, a team. Oh, by the way, they covered against USC last year, and they really should have beaten USC in September last year in Corvallis.
2: Um, I was a little bit off. They weren't twenty-one down. They were seventeen down going into the fourth quarter. It was thirty-one to seventeen. Thirty-one. Uh, 31- 34 to 17 going into uh, the fourth quarter. Um, And the quarterback was six of 13 for 60 yards, two interceptions. They ran for 268 yards, most of those yards coming in the fourth quarter. They ran to come back from down 17 in the fourth quarter. All right, uh, give me your – before we get to the games you like this weekend, give me the over or under, college over or unders this year that you have already wagered on and you really like. Uh,
4: uh, Win totals?
2: Yeah, win totals.
4: Um, yeah, I mean, all of these have probably moved, but I could pull up my full list. Oregon State is one of them. That was my first one, Kevin. I played over eight wins yep. uh, for Oregon State. Um, I played under six and a half wins for Duke. Um, and I know Duke won eight games last year in the regular season. What I said about Duke, I'll, I'll, I'll go quickly on this one, is, look, Duke uh, played over their skis last year. They didn't play Florida State or Clemson. They have Notre Dame on a schedule this year. The schedule is the biggest change from strength of schedule one year to the next, according to Phil Steele and his projections. Uh, so I went under six and a half wins for Duke. I think they'll be good. They certainly could uh, give Clemson a, a challenge on Monday night. Yep. Uh, Riley Leonard's a pro. Yep. Um, but uh, I, I went under six and a half wins for there. Uh, I went under five and a half wins for Utah State. Uh, Utah State in the Mountain West. I rode up the Mountain West for our, our college football guide, so I, I had a little extra insight there. Uh, They lost everybody. Uh, They were a team that won a bunch of close games, got to 6-6, and they got ravaged in the portal, so under 5.5 wins there. I love Colorado State, and might mention them again here in this segment. Uh, I went over 4.5 wins for them, uh, under 5.5 wins for Michigan State, and then under 5 wins for Bowling Green.
2: Did you take any over-unders in the NFL? Did you bet any win-totals? Packers over 7.5. Okay. It um, uh, Was that it? So I'll
4: give you real quickly. Yeah. Yeah, as of right now, I mean, I do like the Commanders over six and a half wins. Um, you know, it spooks me a little bit that it hasn't moved, but uh definitely would play that over. Um, but no, for the Packers, it, it's a situation that I look at, right, where the market had them at 11 and a half wins last year. Now, they've only won eight, but that's a drastic change of four wins. Now, you lost Aaron Rodgers, obviously, but is Jordan Love going to be that big of a drop off from, let's be honest, what was an off season for Aaron Rodgers? So I do like the Packers. I think at four to one, I think they're live to win that NFC North. I don't think they should be the favorite, but I don't think they should be shorter odds than the Chicago Bears who had the worst record in the NFL last year. So, uh, Packers over seven and a half uh, is the only one I have in pocket right now, but you know, Certainly, the Commanders over six and a half is one that I've I've looked long and hard at, uh, you know, for for this upcoming season.
2: I think the Packers are interesting because clearly there is a belief that they're going to be better than they were last year. They got five national television games, five. Um, that's. I just didn't expect that with Aaron Rodgers gone. Um, anyway. Well, and
4: they have – I mean, week one, Kevin, they have – They have Chicago. I do a radio show in Milwaukee, and, you know, they kind of are the same mindset, right? They, they're they kind of ho-hum, like, oh, you know, woe is us, which is like congrats, you just had 30 straight years of Hall of Fame quarterbacking, so no one's really going to feel too sorry for you. But they ask, like, oh, are we going to be in that noon central window? I'm like, nah, you guys are the – 3:25 Central, 4:25 Eastern, number one, you know, Burkhart Olsen team. Yeah, uh, there to start the season. So, look, the Packers are a massive brand. Uh, they have fan bases all over the world. Uh, you know, if you've gone anywhere abroad, like I was in Hawaii, I saw Packers stuff. I was in uh, Mexico, I saw Packers. They're just everywhere, right? So, they're a massive brand. They're they're a high upside, maybe uh, you know, low floor type of team. They've got a lot of young talent. Um, you know, the defense, uh, has, I think eight first round picks, but Hey, they have uh, the same problem that Washington once upon a had Joe Barry is their defensive coordinator and, uh, he's not very good at his job, so we'll see, uh, how the defense all plays out.
2: All right. Uh, let's finish up with who do you like this weekend? You want you, you don't know what I gave out. I'll tell you after, um, right. uh, you give out your, your picks. Who who do you have this week?
4: So I did you I have anybody have a, last a, night. A uh, I played under in uh, in the Utah game, uh, Utah Florida, so I was a bit fortunate there. You know, I'll be honest, Kevin, and this isn't a cop out. And I'll give you a couple of my favorite plays that are still available. But you know, Week One's always tough for me. Um, you know, I, I try to kind of go a little bit easier. Um, you know, the lines move a ton. Uh, I did take some Hawaii plus seven before they played their game against Vanderbilt. That's down to three. So yeah, obviously, mm-hmm. that's not something I say hey go play Hawaii at three if anything I might say maybe look at Stanford has that thing moved too much uh but I really like the Hawaii team um you know we had Timmy Chang on my show and uh he was funny he, he he unsolicited was like I know the point spread I know our win total you know no one believes in us you know uh, what Kirby Smart actually used which was fake uh he's using as you know real numbers so uh you know I'm excited to watch them tonight uh 11 o'clock game but uh yeah I had uh Let's see. I had, yeah, I had the under in uh, in Utah and Florida. Winner. Um, uh, I took, I I I laid the big price. I was like, Utah's not losing this game, so I laid like minus two twenty on uh, on the money line, and then I went off the reservation. And I lost this game. I I was looking for an FCS FBS game. I was like, Western Michigan's gonna be terrible this year, so I took fourteen with St. Francis of PA and uh, didn't come home. So uh,
2: what yeah, was the? All all I, I didn't I didn't see it. What was the final?
4: Thirty-five,
2: seventeen. Okay. Um, yeah, so, all right. Um, so, who do you like? I, took to... a,
4: I did. A, I took a little on UConn. UConn's um, gonna be interesting. NC State. I was pretty unimpressed last night uh, by NC State, but uh, they play Notre Dame next week. I'll tell you one thing. I bet you Notre Dame. Excuse me, Kevin. I'm telling you right now. Clip this and play it back on thir- on Friday next week. You will have NC State in the
2: smell test next week against Notre Dame. I haven't even seen the number. What was it? <laughs>
4: No, I, I think it's like six, but everybody yeah. and the mother who watched uh, NC State struggle it's, with Tukon it's last it's, night. It's eight
2: right now. It's up to eight. Okay. So, yeah. All
4: right. Uh, um, who all right, do you like? like? Two, games, two games that I do like. Uh, the one that I continue to get fired up about, and uh, your boy gave it out last night on on his show, Van Pell, gave it out last night. I love South Alabama. Oh, yeah. That, that,
2: that's my that's my number. That's what I feel the most strongly about. Yes. So, so uh, Scott yeah, gave I, it sure out in winners. It, but he gave it out in winners. Yeah, yeah Scott, of course he did.
4: Yeah, Scott gave it out in winners. Uh, the Bear gave it out on his podcast. I'm like, god yeah, damn it! Boy. Like well, I, I gave it out earlier in the week. Well,
2: uh, but all but we of us all think, think the same, same way. Yeah.
4: I texted. I texted Sands this week, and I told him to uh, to play South Alabama. <laughs> yeah, I did too. He, he
2: he gave me his picks last night, and I said I don't really like anything because I didn't like anything last night. And I said, but I love South Alabama on. Saturday night. Um, all right, so uh, for all the obvious reasons, I mean, it looks free of charge. Uh, the whole world's on Tulane. Tulane, the last time we saw him, beat Southern Cal. I already went through the whole thing. Do you have anything to add to that one?
4: No, I mean, and and, and just, you know, outside of just the smell test and how you and I think, this South Alabama thing is – good I they're know. really good yeah. they've got a, they've got continuity with their coaching staff major apple white is their offensive coordinator uh this is probably the last year of this uh you know coaching staff and um, they're going to get poached no doubt about it uh they have 18 starters back they didn't really lose anybody to the portal and then Tulane you know while they kept willie fritz even though he flirted long and hard with georgia tech they lost their offensive coordinator. They lost their defensive coordinator. They lost their special teams coordinator. Oh, by the way, Tajay Spears ran for like 200 yards against USC. He's gone. Their top, I think, five tacklers are gone, Kevin. So they still have a good O-line. They still have Michael Pratt. But, and, and lastly, Tulane plays Ole Miss next week with at home. So they're bringing an SEC team to town next week. I, yeah, Everything kind of lines up. For us to uh, to like South Alabama, but hey, and it's under t- a touchdown, right? So everyone's out there. Ooh, I could, you know, I could take this under Man. a touchdown. I could tease it down to a half, whatever. So, uh, yeah, go South Alabama, go Jags on uh, on Saturday night. The other one that I've played, it's moved a bunch, but I'll still mention it. Uh, Colorado State, I-, I really like Colorado State. Uh, this thing opened like sixteen and a half, so it's down to eleven, eleven and a half. So, you know, I don't love. <laughs> Given out plays that have moved five. They're, they're points, home but, against
2: Washington State. I looked at this hard. I I almost gave it out, but I didn't. But go ahead.
4: So yeah, I'll, I'll run through it quickly here. Colorado State went three and nine last year. They were a disaster. Uh, Jay Norvell's their head coach, the former Nevada coach. He comes over, and it's year two. Uh, they were able to, uh, you know, defend essentially. Folks leaving for the portal. They have a, a, a like a superstar wide receiver. His name's Torrey Horton. He's an absolute stud. He fended off, or they fended off enough pieces to keep him there. Their quarterback, Clay Millen, was a former four-star recruit. He's been in now this system for three years. He started at Nevada, come over to Colorado State. Colorado State was the worst offensive line in the country last year. They allowed 59 sacks. They brought in four new starters to the offensive line. Uh, They added a North Dakota State transfer at running back to, to go along with their running back, who was pretty darn good. Uh, and they added some pieces on the defense too. They added another North Dakota state kid on the defense. So I think Colorado state, uh, you know, pretty darn good. Uh, I think they have a chance, uh, to be a long shot to, to win the Mountain West if you're looking for like a, a super long flyer. And look, if I'm catching 11, 11 and a half at home, Washington state, uh, they lost, I believe both of their coordinators as well. Uh, they lost some pieces on the offensive side of the ball. So, I think Colorado State's competitive tomorrow night. Uh, I do. So that's a, a 7 o'clock Eastern game uh, at Colorado State. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to take some some home dog there in Colorado State.
2: All right. South Alabama, Colorado State. You like Hawaii a little bit. Um, looking Not forward. The
4: price. And then yeah. and then last one, Kevin, I don't know what if you've talked about it. Um, I like Florida State. I think everybody's. On the LSU train here, um, I like Florida State in this spot. I I think they're super talented. Their offensive line uh, has over 200 career starts. Uh, I think it's a wash at the quarterback position, Jalen Daniels versus Jordan Travis. Uh, They brought in Keon Coleman, a transfer from Michigan State, after spring. Uh, They were really busy. Both of these teams were very busy in the portal. But, you know, there's all this hype about LSU winning the SEC West again and, you know, last year they were ahead of schedule, which all may be true, but, um, you know, I always kind of think it's an, it's an indicator, Kevin, when this number kind of hangs out under three, right? You've, you've seen a lot of public support for LSU, and it's another one of those things where I think the general public is going to say, hey, I'm getting LSU on sale. Look at this. They don't even have to, you know, they could win by a field goal, and I win this bet. I think Florida State wins this game on, on Sunday night. I think it's a great game. Both of these teams are properly rated at, at what they are: five for LSU, eight for Florida State. But I think Florida State beats LSU on Sunday
2: night. Uh, look, I, for all of the reasons you mentioned, uh, I considered Florida State. I, I just last year's game. Uh, j- this is this is a spot where LSU, I think, wants a piece of Florida State. They 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 you know they they missed the extra point that would have tied the game at the end. I I'm not a subscriber to the theory that LSU got lucky last year. I watched them a lot last year. No, they're good. The 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 uh, they're not only good. They're super well coached for the first time in a long time. They just kept getting better uh, during the course of the year, um, and. You know, like uh, Steve said to me, well, they they almost lost to Arkansas, but that was the week after they beat Bama. You know, there was a bit of a hangover. I think I had Arkansas that weekend plus a a relatively short number. Um, They won the game, and they scored and moved the ball against Georgia, you know, and not many teams did that. You know, Ohio State did. Um, But I'm I'm a believer in LSU, uh, but – that wouldn't change my mind on the wager, the line, everything you said reeks, and I'll probably play it personally. But it's really not an overwhelming public play. Uh, LSU, there's there's enough Florida State yeah, money up. out there, um, including some sharp yeah, money, which depends. is yeah, yeah, why the you know one of the reasons the numbers hang in there two and a half two. All right, uh, great job, appreciate yeah. it. Uh, enjoy um, this weekend, and uh, we'll talk soon.
4: All right, Kevin, see
2: you. All right, thanks to Timmy. Thanks to Santana Moss. I will have a show Monday. Uh, enjoy your last summer weekend. Talk next week.
1: You know, this is when you find out about your offense and defense. I mean, this is what good offense is when you can make plays in this situation. Good defense is when you can stop those plays. From the 30, we're now going deep. Lynn and Williams on the coverage. He beats the same two guys. Unbelievable. He just outran him,
2: and Mark Brunel got it out there. That's what I'm saying. This is offense. This is defense. You can play great defense the whole game, but you have to make a play here. You
1: can play lousy offense the whole game, but you have to make a play here. And the team that makes the play is the team that's going to win. 70 yards to Moss, and so the Redskins go almost two full games without a touchdown, and then they get them back-to-back, and the extra point will give them the lead. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing